You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Good morning. How are we? Wow, you guys are so active. And I always love to say this, especially in, in th- coming through worship when I get to hear you all sing, and I'm, I appreciate that Brett steps away sometimes. You can hear your voices. You guys sound so good today. It's so good. So I appreciate that. Um, so we are jumping back into Acts 17, and something I, I love about uh, this part of Acts, it's actually one of my, my I don't know if you can have a favorite. I say this often, but I don't know if you can have favorites in the Bible. It should be, the whole thing should be your favorite. But, but there's something about this chunk and how Paul addresses uh, his audience in this one that's unique to other places in his ministry. And so it's just, it's just a neat passage. But as we dive into that, you can grab your Bibles. If you've got a Bible, open a device. We'll have it on the screens too. But we're going to be in Acts 17, starting in uh, verse 16. Um, and I want to set up the environment before we dive in to the word, because I think the environment of what Paul is in is so essential to understand how he addresses uh, the audience that he has. And so if you remember from last week, uh, Pastor Keith led us through this, this moment, and then right at the end of the passages that he was preaching on, there's a scuffle, there's a, an uprise kind of against Paul and his teaching, which it poured Paul, man, he gets this everywhere he goes. And and it's not because he's a mean guy. It's just because he's preaching the gospel, and the gospel is not always uh, receptive or being received from people because it's offsetting to what they've known and what they believe and, and, and how they've lived up to that point because it's, it's saying, I've got to submit and, and turn myself over to this person of Jesus. So, so it's hard. So Paul finds himself in this environment. Uh, and I love last week's passage, too, because my name's in the Bible. And so that's pretty awesome. Um, and I get thrown in jail, I guess. So, but that's cool. It's for good reasons. So I love that because my, my name is biblical and I never really knew that until later on in life. I always thought Jason, I thought Jason, this is a side note, rabbit trail. I'm so sorry. This is free, free. Um, I always thought Jason was a weird name. I always liked my, why'd you name me Jason? At one point in time when I was in middle school, I tried to change my name to my, my middle name, which is Michael, which seems way, way more like, I don't know, masculine, Jason, like, but now Jason's cool because there's lots of Jasons, and it's in the Bible, so it's even better. Um, anyway, back to the path. Uh, here we go. So let's look at where Paul is. They, he's coming out of this, this uh, kind of uprising against him, and the disciples move him out of town. And then if they, they kind of get him to the sea, and then they say, we're going to take you even farther because we're concerned about your uh, well-being. We're concerned about your safety. So they take him to Athens, Athens, Greece. Jason, not Athens, Georgia. Athens, Greece. A different place. Um, so there's this sense where they, they felt so concerned about what Paul was going through and these people that were coming up against what Paul was preaching that they had to take him to a completely different city which says a lot about Paul's ministry. And one of the things I do love about the passage, the scriptures from last week was the reason that Jason got thrown into prison or, and got kind of pulled out and accused of what he was accused because he was changing the world. I don't know if that's exactly what the scripture says, but it's basically he's doing something that's going to change the world. What a beautiful thing. And so Paul's being uh, persecuted and, and sought after to be harmed because he's doing something that is going to change the world. 
And so they move him to this place called Athens. Now, Athens is a, a pretty significant city in this time of history. It's well known for uh, its art, it's well known for its food, it's well known for its music, and it's well known for its politics and its philosophy. There's names that are connected to Athens like Socrates and Plato and, and you name it. You pull out these big philosophers that we study in school and we hear about. This is a place that they went to to debate and to discuss and to bring about these philosophical arguments and thoughts these are some of the leading world thinkers in, in, in thought, it's in morals and ethics. This is where it happened. It was an epicenter to these things in the ancient world. So we find Paul in this city, this epicenter of all of these ways of thought and thinking and food and music and art. And it's Paul. So he's not like, okay, you brought me here because I need to be protected. So I'm going to go hide in my hotel room. No, he's out in the city, and you'll see in the passage when we read through it, that he's preaching once again in the synagogue. He's moving to his place because that's his mission. That's his purpose. That is what Jesus has called him to do. So he's like, I'm not neglect. I know my life's in danger, but I'm not neglecting what I'm meant to do. So he gets out there. But after that, you kind of see him. It's, it's a real subtle shift that, that Luke puts there, but he starts basically wandering the city. And he's working his way through the city of Athens and he's taking in all of the environment and the culture and the people. And things start to jump out of him from his observations. Things that he go, wow, this is so interesting. Look at what these people are about. And yet they're running around uh, like busy bees scurrying through life and doing these things and trying to live up to these certain philosophical ideas or live up to these certain cultural norms that they have to, to live by in this epicenter of the world. And he begins to address that. And because he looks at that and he, he, he brings that up, then he's taken to this place to say, hey, we want to hear more from you. You have some ideas we've never heard before. And we want to learn from that because, again, this is a, a place, an epicenter, where they want to hear new ideas. They want to contemplate new thought. They're intellectuals that, that want to hear the academic side of thinking and moral and ethics and, and story. And so God put him in a place to where the story of the gospel just rose to the surface and in some levels was received in such a different way than anywhere else Paul preached up to this point. And it's such a powerful thing. Now, there's some things that throughout the passage we're going to encounter, and you're going to go, what are these? Like, who are this? Where is this? And so I'm going to take a little pause. And last week, the other thing we talked about, we want to encourage you guys to get into the Word of God. And so we provided resources for you, as Bible study resources, reading plans, Bibles, you name it. We still have those this week. If you guys were missed out on last week, one, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon. It is fantastic. But two, we want to make sure that you're diving into God's word. And so we've got a table over here to my right that has resources you can look at. Even we want to get a Bible in your hands if you guys don't have a Bible. There's also one out in the hallway. But to show you the importance of some of these resources, I'm going to use one this morning. Isn't that great? 
Yeah, woo, yeah, talk back. That's awesome. Um, and so this is the CSB Study Bible. It's not what I'm going to read from in a minute, but it's a, it's a Bible that has some of the best resources right now for studying the Word. And so some of you, I know you guys picked this up last week, and so if you have this, pull it out, because I'm going to use it this morning to describe um, what Paul is encountering in the book of Acts. And I want to do this not only to teach you about the passage, but I want to show you how this resource can be so helpful in us understanding the passages that we read. Does that sound good? So also, these are my favorite, like some of the best things in the Bible. And this one has, oh, I can't get this out because I haven't used it yet. It's, there's two of them. I have a Bible that has like five of them, and it's like my favorite Bible because there's like all these little tabs and stuff. It's, it's just fat, fabulous. So there's a few people that Paul encountered through this passage, uh, and, and, and in the CSB Study Bible, it helps us understand who these people are. And so I want to talk to those people. Um, they're Epicurean Stoic philosophers. These are a group of people, thinkers in this day in Athens that are present. And it's... It, it, Luke just kind of runs through it like, oh, we know who these people are. We know why they have this label on their philosophies and everything else. But then we all look at it like, I have no idea. I have no idea. Does anyone know what Epicurean means? Anyone? Okay, good. I was going to be nervous. I had no idea. Stoic? We know kind of what stoic means, but, you know, there's an idea. So if you look into this, and if you have one of these Bibles, page 1750, if you don't have one of these Bibles, they're available to you afterwards. But the CSB writes this about Epicurean Stoic philosophers. They're comprised of two of the best-known philosophical schools of thought. Epicureans taught that one ought to lead a tranquil and contemplative life, free of passions and destructive emotions. They didn't deny the existence of little g-gods, but believed they were indifferent to humanity, so that it just didn't matter. Which is interesting, because what we're going to walk through in the city of Athens. So they definitely stood out. I can see why Luke made a point of mentioning them. And then Stoics. Stoics were pantheists and believed that the divine principle was found everywhere. Humans ought to live by reason, the divine principle within them, as to achieve a virtuous life. Epicureans and Stoics attracted many followers who gathered in various parts of the city to discuss the leading issues of the day. So here we go. Great resource. It gives us a great understanding of this group of people that Paul is addressing in this audience. And what stands out about these two groups of people is they, they both have different views of life, of moral, of ethics, of thought, of how to process things that we experience. And I even think, too, with the Epicureans, that they're, they're, they're kind of looking of all of this stuff, and, and they're not even recognizing in a city where, where gods are so prevalent that they, 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 they look beyond that. So that's an interesting point, especially with how Paul's going to address that. And then Stoics, that, that they can even look above and beyond everything and say, it's, there's, everything's in everything. So we can look at everything and find this divine divinity of, of whatever it is, but they don't quite have a name for it. They just look at everything and say, this is all things are, are above all things. And, and there's something that we have to almost worship in all things. And so when you see a stone, you can, you can look to that and say, there's something divine in that stone. Or you can look to that tree and you can see that. And so there's another interesting thing that Paul will address from his audience in that way, which is really neat, right? So kudos to the book. There's another place that Paul is taken to when he's in Athens. As he's heard um, teaching, they say, we, we need to hear from you. And so we want to take you to this place that, that we bring people who have this kind of thinking and this kind of teaching. And it, it's a pretty significant place. 
It's a place that, that people gather to hear new thought, that, that uh, rules and, and, and laws are, are, are created and landed on. And it's not just a, a welcome to everybody. It's, it's the place where all the, the best thinkers, the, the, most, the highest intellectuals gather to debate and to have conversation about these things and these thoughts. It's called Areopagus. Uh, a, a common word that we may know about is called Mars Hill. It's a, it's a risen up place uh, in Athens where they would gather. It's not as huge as you think, but it almost creates a natural uh, atmosphere. And so this is what the CSB study Bible talks about, Areopagus. So again, once again, good learning. The Areopagus was a rocky hill in Athens overlooking the marketplace. And so it stood up above the marketplace where people gathered and they, they lived life in. The word Areopagus was also used to refer to the council that originally met on the hill. During the Hellenistic times, the council probably met in the Agora or the marketplace. The Greek text here is ambiguous. So it could be that Paul gave an address on the hilltop or that he appeared before the Athenian council elsewhere. But the term Areopagus means hill of Ares, the god of Greek of war in the Greek. And it was equivalent to the Roman god Mars. And so it, that's why it's also known as Mars Hill. Thank you, CSB, for bringing that out. Right? Grab your resources. They're awesome. Shameless plug. But there's a beautiful place that Paul is in the midst of this preaching in the city that is all about uh, intellect and thought and gods. Now, in Athens alone, thousands upon thousands of gods are represented. So if you guys are Avenger fans, anyone? Avenger fans? Everyone like a good Thor? You know, this is it. Like, this is the epicenter of these kind of gods that, that we now are entertained by in the storylines of the movies that we watch. This is, in Athens, this is where they are celebrated and memorialized and, and built up. There's thousands of statues in ancient Athens. Over 3,000, Pliny, a Roman author, writes over 3,000 different gods were memorialized in statues throughout the city. 3,000. There's monuments. The Parthenon that we are, have heard about, we've studied, we see pictures of, was one that housed the, I believe they're called the Olympian gods. So um, uh, that, that they kind of, there's 12 of them. And so I want to show you the 12. There's a diagram up. And so I'll get to get to this picture in a second. But this diagram is just out of the 12. And this is their genealogical tree. There's just 12 of them. So imagine in Athens, we're celebrating these 12, but then all of these others come out of those 12. Thor, I'm sure, somewhere is in there. God of thunder, uh, you know? And so there's a sense of this. If this is only out of the 12, imagine the 3,000 more, and you start doing the multiplication of it all. The city of Athens had their eyes on and were focused on a whole lot of little G gods. It's known that throughout these 3,000 statues that there were statues that consisted of demigods and heroes, Olympic heroes and stars and athletes that they immortalized and celebrated and worshipped. There was one street where there was just pillars of gods that are lined up to celebrate these kind of heroes. There's streets that were just lined up in front of every household, some statue on a pillar outside of each home or, or, or archway that entered into the home to represent a god of protection or a god of whatever it may be. And that's not even counting what may have been in someone's home, a pillar that had a bust of a god of some sort that they thought would protect or provide or, or, or they thought was the 
thing that they needed to celebrate in their world. Gods were everywhere in this city. And then the picture that we just had up a second ago shows a little bit of what you can imagine. This is just a painting of, of what Athens would have looked like in ancient times. But if you look around, it's kind of like if you those search and find games. So you, if you can search and find all the gods in there. You can just see over here to the right, there's five right there sticking out. And then all of the pillars that run down to the center, a colonnade there, you see all of the, the statues that are lined up throughout Athens, and this is just a small glimpse, an image of what ancient Athens would have looked like. It was a city that celebrated power and intellect and, and some level of supremacy in, in, in gods that, that they thought were out there in this universe, and they were just trying to figure out, but it was also this place of they, they worshiped intellect, academic. They worship philosophical thought about ethic and moral. And so here's Paul wandering the cities. And so let's jump into uh, this passage and starting in verse 16, let's read down through his experience in this city of Athens. Starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, which is very common for Paul to do. It's one of the places he went to when he moved into a new city. He wanted to see uh, the Jews and the devout persons and, and speak the gospel into their lives. And though he was there, but he was also in the marketplace every day. The marketplace, again, we understand from the, under, the teaching about Areopagus from the study Bible is that it was right below Areopagus. And so they would be able to see this place where the thought thinkers um, of the day would go to speak through these things. And so he's in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So it wasn't planned. He was just wandering through. And some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler say? Now, they give him this term babbler, and it's, it's definitely a, uh, a derogatory term in the sense of it, it actually means seed picker. And they're saying, you're just pulling out all these ideas, and you're just throwing out there. You're trying to get your way up the ladder that your voice is heard, because it's probably pretty common in the day that people are trying to raise up so their voice is heard, and their thinking and their thought process is kind of put out there. They, they can then be celebrated. So they're calling him. What does this babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. He's speaking of some other foreign deities that we don't even know, which is impressive considering the thousands upon thousands of deities that they have in their city. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. They're a curious bunch. It shows to their culture, their curiosity, their desire to learn and to know more. And he goes on, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. So again, we hear the, the, the culture of the city and what Paul is addressing. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed your, the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps, and I love this phrase, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, speaking of Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Paul struck a chord. There's something in them like, oh, we haven't heard this. This is interesting. We want to know more. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among those were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. And so we see Paul in this environment. And there's an image I think I had up there of Areopagus giving an idea of what he's standing in the midst of and where he is right here on this rock, this hill, overlooking what would have, this is more modern day Athens, but overlooking what would have been the marketplace. He was above and, and kind of in this position to be heard and he's being heard. And one thing I, I, I love that, that, that we see in, in Paul's address here is he did not come in a fashion or form or presence or demeanor to say, you guys are crazy. Everything you're believing is wrong. Everything you're into makes you sinful. And therefore, this God I'm going to tell you about, you will be separated from him because you have sin in your life. He didn't go after the negative of their city. He drew on the observations of their culture to draw out of that the truth and show them something that they were missing. That's unique. And I think there's power in that that Paul didn't have to point out all the things that were wrong about them for them to understand. Paul took the time to say, I just want you to understand the one that you're missing. And I want you to understand about the one that you're missing and why that one should and does stand out above all the others. Because in that one, there's power. In that one, there's truth. In that one, there's hope. And Paul knew that. 
So he addresses them not to debate them or to rebuke them, but just to to bring discussion and to open up their eyes to this one statue that they weren't sure of what it was or who it was and to say, this one, I want to bring out something about this one and show you the light of who this is, the power of who it is. And he draws out on five points on this one unknown God, to set apart the the one and only true God who we see in the person and the nature and the character and the life of Jesus. And so I wanna point those out to you. And first is this, God is creator. In verse 24, to the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. That God, this God, the one and only true God is creator. All your other gods that can create thunder and lightning and storms. Yeah, this, this God, this God is above those little G gods. This is the big G God. He is creator over all things. Everything you see and exist and you stoics out there that you think the rock and the tree, yet God created those things. He's not necessarily in those things, but he is the creator of those things. God is creator. So let's focus on that one first. And second, let's look at that God is above all. This is a big statement for him to make in verse 24 that does not, he does not live in the temples made by man. This city celebrated what they could build and how they could, the architecture that was there and, and the structures they could put, the, the statues that they could form. They celebrated this work and and Paul's teaching them that that this God that you don't have a name for, that you don't know, he is a God that is above all of these things. As grand and as beautiful as your city is, this God who you don't know, he is above those things. You can't form or shape him. He is. And that's a big statement for as they look about all these other gods because some of these other gods were like other universe kind of gods. They were so far set apart from them. And Paul's recognizing, no, that, that this, this unknown God that you represent but don't know, he is a, even far above that. Not only did he create that universe, but he stands above and beyond that. And then he goes on to say that God is all sufficient. In verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That this God doesn't need anything from you. You can't make him or shape him or create anything more in who he is. He is all sufficient. He is everything, all in one. There's nothing we can bring to him that will make him more. As much as the the God Almighty is one that we should turn and worship and that he desires and he, he craves and he's jealous for that worship and that response from us. It's not that he needs it to be God. He is God with or without that. He desires it so that he has relationship with us, with his creation. And so he's saying, this isn't a God that we bring something to to make more of, that he becomes bigger because of who we are. He is because of who he is, period. He's all sufficient. He says, God is sovereign. 
He has his hands over all things. Verse 25 and 26, that again, he gives uh, himself, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is what has given us everything we have and everything we need. He is sovereign over those things. He is the decider of, of, of what is in and around and for us and in our world. And then he goes on in verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of all mankind to live. Again, speaking back to he is creator on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that God is sovereign, that, that he leads and he guides and he, he puts into place things that are part of his plan in the journey. He is sovereign over these things. That... You know, there's this God of thunder, God of war, and they may decide these certain things. And, and we think that we can help uh, by our worship, by our response to, to change that or to guide that or direct that. But the, our, our one true almighty God, he decides that and directs that and leads that and, and purposes that for his plan and his glory and his will. Again, not about what we do and how we shift the thinking of God, but the God is all sovereign. And this one must have sent the people whirling that God is present. God is present. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For, and I love that he uses uh, Roman and Greek poets to speak back to them the truth, not only because he's speaking to who they are in their culture, but he's, I mean, God is uh, designed to say, hey, these guys said something right. I'm going to put in my word because it points to me. I think that's pretty awesome. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And so he is present and he is with us. These Athenians look around their city and there's these thousands of gods immortalized in these statues. None of them have life. They're made of stone or gold or wood. They don't move or they don't talk. They don't, they don't do life with them. They're mere statues. Empty, lifeless, breathless statues. Busts cuts of what we think that God may look like. But this one God, this true God, this almighty God, he is with us. He is in relationship with us. He desires to walk with the ones that we created. He is present. He is here. beautiful nature to know that a God that has created all things, a God that is above all, a God that is all sufficient, a God that is sovereign, that he desires to be present with his creation. And to look out and to see, see, they're even so excited about that truth, to look out and to think that as they seek God, and I love how Paul draws this out, perhaps they feel their way toward and find him. There's an illusion in this statement that if you read it, that it's almost like they're in the darkness and they're feeling their way around and they're pulling their way. They're, they're struggling 
to find something they can't see. And Paul's trying to illuminate that for them. To say as they do it, that he's there to be found. And when you find the light, you run to the light. And he draws out the truth and straight up the gospel. That there are times that there are ignorance that God overlooked that. But now in this moment, in this change, in the person of Jesus, he's calling us to repentance. He's commanding it that every nation, every tribe will gather and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And that we're called to this place of understanding the person of Jesus through his death and his resurrection, that we repent and say, God, we've worshiped all these other gods that we've put before us and we've shaped and crafted in our world. And we put them aside and we recognize that I've given all of my attention, all of my energy, all of my breath and all my worth to them. Lord, I'm giving it all to you because you are the only one true God, the creator, the above all, the all-sufficient, the sovereign, the present. And I recognize that my sin has led me away from you. And I want to run back to you. And we're given assurance through his death and his resurrection, life and light. What a beautiful, beautiful story that amongst this world of, of gods that we have, that there's light in that darkness. That as we try to work our way through figuring out this world and what it is presenting in front of us, that we go, ah, there's so many. This hasn't changed for us in today's age. From the sense of the religious world of, of, of this time, 2022, so many different gods out there. I was reading an article the other day about the millennial generation. The millennials get picked on for everything. So if you're a millennial, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. If you're not a millennial, you all got picked on too. I got picked on too in my generation. Like we don't care about anything, blah, blah, blah. It's all about music. And it was, but it's a sense of, we all get picked on for these things. But I was reading this article that, that there's a, 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 some, a barn of research that shows that millennials, that they don't even believe in the word, that they believe that I can pick and choose this and that, not even from the word of God. I can pick and choose it from this philosophy or this uh, line of thought and say, this shapes who my God is. So the audience that Paul's speaking to in ancient Athens, this word matters to us now because we're that same audience, different day. And there's a lot of religious gods out there that we can fumble our way through the darkness and, 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 and scratch through the surface trying to figure out, but there's only one true God that is creator above all, sufficient, sovereign, and present with us. That's what makes God Almighty stand out above everyone else. Because you can do the research and you can do the study work into any religious belief system in our world. And the God that we worship is the only God that stands above for all these things. All the other ones have holes in their boats. Our God's does not. He is firm and secure, the true foundation. And we know our God. What does he look like? He looks like Jesus. If you're trying to figure out what the God Almighty, the creator of all things looks like, just look to Jesus. And that's where Paul is pointing us towards. But here's another thing I think we have in our day and age that maybe they had in Athens, maybe they didn't. We can look out and most of us will say, you know, Jason, I, I, I worship the one true God. I come here on Sunday. I'm in a life group. I'm doing Bible study. I'm telling people about Jesus every day. And awesome. 
please continue to live out a life that points the glory to the name of Jesus, that makes much of his name, not much of ours. But then I have to wonder what's parked in our garages? What's parked in our checking accounts? What's parked in our kids' success academically or maybe success athletically or whatever else? Have we potentially made those our gods? That if there's not success there, that we feel failure here? Have we raised up so much so the amount of money we make or the amount of beauty that we can create around ourselves or the amount of horsepower in the vehicle that we drive from here to high V and back and then try to park it 10 times and it never works. Or on the side of the soccer field or the baseball field or, or whatever it may be. Have we raised those up and those are the busts and the statues that sit outside or maybe even inside our homes? that we've given them the glory over the glory of God, that we believe that those are the things that give us life. I believe Paul is speaking into that for us. And again, not pointing out, shaking his finger at us, but reminding us that in the midst of that, that what we're really clamoring for in that moment in our soul when we're sitting alone in that chair in our home and we go, is this what life is all about? To hear Paul's voice, the word of God speak and say that thing that you are feeling your way towards and looking for is me. And I am above all. And I want to be present with you. And I have this figured out. I know you, every hair on your head. I created you in your mother's womb. I knit you together. I know the path you'll walk and I will, I will walk with you and I'll help guide that path for you. And you, Proverbs, you can plan your way, but I will guide your steps. He's a personal God. And Paul's drawing out of that the nature and the person of Jesus. I want to share a passage with you out of Colossians that we see the church in Colossae that Paul writes in understanding the person of Jesus. And in a few moments, we're going to move into a time of celebrating the work of Christ on the cross and through his resurrection, through celebrating communion together. But we remember that we may have to pause and stop and say, Lord, what have I put before you? What are the thousands of things that I've led into my world, into my life, that I've raised up above you? And to say, God, I, I can't do that. I need to repent of that. I want you to be first. But he writes this to this church in verse 15, chapter one of Colossians. He is the image of the uninvisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, and I love this part, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Do you hear the hope in that passage? That even in a world where we are surrounded by so many gods, even in a world where it's so easy for us to raise up this pillar and this thing and, and this way of thinking or this thought or this checkbook or this automobile or this kid of ours who's gonna go the distance and become the next Einstein and can buy me my RV so I can just drive around the country and relax for the rest of my life. Like, I'm gonna set that above. But that thinking is what leads us to a dark place. And we find ourselves in those moments reaching around trying to find the light again. Church, Paul's illuminating for us that in the midst of this, there's something in all of our lives that we have yet maybe not named. We're not giving glory over everything else and that is God Almighty. And we see and know him through the image and the person of Jesus. And think of this that whatever those gods may be in our lives, that he redeems us, he welcomes us in, he's present with us. That for in him, in verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things that God wants to reconcile you. No matter what other gods are around you that you've let creep into your life, that you've taken hold of and said, this is more important, that he wants to reconcile that in you to himself. And he wants to bring you peace through his work on the cross, life through his resurrection, that we may walk with him and you hear me say this all the time, that as we walk with him and he's doing this work in us, that he also wants to do his work through us. How beautiful is that? I'm gonna have Brett come up here and we're gonna start moving into a time of sharing in communion together. That we recognize this truth that in a world there are so many gods around us, so many things that can grab our attention and take all of our focus and then we start giving worth to that. Do you know that that's what worship means? It means it should just be worthship, that we're giving worth back to God and we give that worth to anything else. We have moved ourselves away from God the Almighty, from the person of Jesus, the work of the Spirit in our life, and we need to run back to him. We need to say, God, I am sorry if I put anything above or in front of you, if I've raised anything higher than who you are. Lord, I want you to be first because you're the only God that has given of yourself, your son, to take on all of my sin, all of my wrong thinking, all of my wrong actions, all of the things that I've given to separate myself from you. You've given it all so I can have a relationship with you once again. 
that when you died on the cross, that curtain was torn from top to bottom, and I have now access to the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of God because he is a present God. So Brett's going to lead us through a song, and here's what I want to do during this particular song. Before we come to the tables, is to reflect and to ask ourselves honestly, Spirit, show me if there's anything that I've put on a pillar in or outside of my home that is higher than you. And I believe the Spirit wants to speak to you, not just to correct or rebuke or to say shame on you, but to look at you and say, yes, but I'm greater and I'm here and I'm present, I'm alive created you and I love you. I'm all sufficient. I'm all powerful. I just want to be walking with you day to day. So I'm going to ask you guys to do something just to simply close your eyes and to take in while Brett sings a song through the verses of this song to hear the words, but to, to speak to Jesus, say, Jesus, spirit, show me the things that I've placed before you so that as I come to the table, nothing is separating myself from your presence. Paul talks about that in Corinthians as he sets up communion. Examine and know your heart. And if things need to be cleared out, let's clear those things out before we come and celebrate. So let's take these moments and just reflect on what God and what the Spirit is doing and working and transforming in our hearts and our souls. Oh, 
trust in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but in this I know with all my paid my ransom and why should I gain from his reward I cannot give an answer but in this I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom yes this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom And so as we prepare to give our, our lives and to the person of Jesus understanding to celebrate this work we have tables here in the front there's two on the sides that we come to this table and we, we hold this cup that has a, a, a simple piece of bread and juice in it that represents the body that has been broken for you and the blood that was shed for you. That we find life through his work of the death and the resurrection just as Paul preached and spoke about to the Athenians. He speaks and he preaches to us. And we come to celebrate because through this work of the cross, we have life through his resurrection. And so when we come to these tables, maybe you come as a couple or a family or as individuals or with friends, whatever it may be that you come and you take the elements, the body and the blood of Christ, and you hold them for just a moment before you just consume them, but you receive them, understanding what they represent. And you remember, as we are called to remember, the work of Christ for you that brings peace, that brings light. So the band's are gonna come back up and, and lead us through another song as we respond in this way. But as we've prepared our hearts, may we now move to a place of, Lord, you're turning and, and moving in this me. I know that I need to get these things corrected, but now I can, I can celebrate your work in my life. I can celebrate what you've done and you are good, amen? That God is good. And so in a moment, I'm gonna ask you just to, to step forward and as you're ready and come to one of these tables and, and then take the elements and pause and remember the work of Christ for you. And then take those elements, whether it's with maybe yourself or with your, your wife or your spouse or a friend or your family and thank God for the goodness that he is the God that stands out above all and that he wants to be present with you. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he's come. Life through resurrection. So church, let's come and let's celebrate the work of Jesus for us. And let's raise his name above all names. That he is God. So come as you're ready and let's worship together.